bent and broken the theological origin of, uh, origins of the blues. My, my wife and I actually dated in New York City because uh, when I moved to New Haven for two years, she, could get, she was a flight attendant. She could get flights to New York City. I thought she just didn't want to get flights to California when I lived there. And it turned out that she actually could. I never called her back because she didn't think that I was interested. And I didn't think she was interested. And she said, well, whose fault is that? So in any case, when I came, uh, I moved to Connecticut, I called her and uh, said, is there an outside chance? And she said, yes, of course. It was always because I couldn't get a flight out to California. So after wasting is, is my want, uh, months, um, finally, we were able to do that. And uh, one of the things that we liked to do was go to the Blue Note. Uh, and uh, Lisa and I both like the blues. Now, in three sentences, I'm going to exhaust everything theoretical that I know about the blues. All I know is that I like, I like the blues. And one of the things I like about it is because I think it resonates so well with the Psalter, the songbook of the people of God. And I'll be bringing that out a little bit as, as I go along. Uh, as, as you know, I'm sure better than I do, this, the, the blues come out of the spirituals, uh, out of the, the crucible of the African-American experience. And not only slavery, but uh, the uh, so-called Reconstruction uh, era, uh, all the way through Jim Crow, that experience made people bent and broken. <laughs> and the music showed that. One of the things that uh, this expression came out of was the so-called field holler, where uh, one group of people would uh, shout out a question, the other group would answer. It's not just that there are these broken notes that you find in the Psalms, even in the very character of the blues itself, uh, in, in the very character of these origins of the field holler, you have a a very rhythmic kind of uh, back and forth call and response that you would find in the Psalms. It's exactly what would have been done, for instance, in the Psalms of Ascent as they made their way to the great feasts. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. That would be a field hauler. And uh, there are Psalms of Lament. Not all Psalms are Psalms of Lament. And even the Psalms of Lament end mostly, not always, but mostly on a note of hopeful confidence in God. But what's really interesting about the blues is that the music actually fits the words. Uh, the most common chord progression is 12-bar blues uh, progression. The blues notes are flattened and bent, in some cases crushed, where two keys are uh, played, uh, uh, two keys adjacent to each other are played at the same time. And even the, the terms themselves, bent, broken, crushed, <laughs> it, you know, in, in what musical form has the language about the, 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 the music itself fit so well with the lyrics? Here's what Friedrich Nietzsche had to say, and then we'll get into the theological uh, synchronization of Christianity and the blues. That great uh, Reformation theologian Friedrich Nietzsche in uh, 
his book, The Will to Power, wrote, The Christian movement is a degeneracy movement composed of reject and refuse elements of every kind. It is therefore not national, not racially conditioned. It it appeals to the disinherited everywhere. It is founded on a rancor against everything well-constituted, well-built, and dominant. It needs a symbol that represents a curse on the well-constituted and dominant. It also stands in opposition to every spiritual movement, to all philosophy. It takes the side of idiots and utters a curse on the spirit. Rancor against the gifted, the learned, spiritually independent. It detects in them the well-constituted the masterful. Dionysus, the god of heavenly revelry who was cut in pieces, versus the crucified. There you have the antithesis I'm looking for. It is not a difference in regard to their martyrdom. It is a difference in the meaning of it. The god on the cross is a curse on life. A signpost to seek redemption from life. Dionysus cut to pieces is a promise of life. It will be eternally reborn and return always again from destruction. We don't like to be losers, especially in America. One of the things that just really gets us all up in arms, it doesn't seem to bother Christians in other countries when they're called losers, but really bothers American Christians. We're always nervous about what people think about us and what we do not want people to think about us is that we're losers. And that's why we keep having this uh, recurrence of muscular Christianity, of uh, trying to show people that Christian, Christians are cool, Christians are big, Christians are tough. Remember Jesus cleared out the money changers? It's like... The cross, okay, we'll talk about that later, but remember when he really, he was a big dude. He couldn't have done that unless he was a big dude. And, and of course, Ted Turner, whose opinion we care about a great deal, uh, said that Christianity is for losers. So, oh, we don't want to hear that. That's just, that's horrible. For at least a century and a half, American Christianity has spent great effort and money on PR campaigns for Christianity in just this area of concern. Famous athletes, politicians, entertainers, and other icons of popular culture, usually, I just often referring to the same person, uh, are regularly trotted out as trophies of grace. And what I would love to see, but I haven't seen yet, is this is Bob, he's my janitor. And he's going to tell you about justification. That's my, that's the day that I'm looking for. Uh, but it's probably not going to happen anytime soon. We're, we're cool, we're good looking, we're healthy, po- prosperous, famous. That's, that, those are the people that we want to, uh, that, that we want to appear before the camera uh, in our place to represent us. As the title of a bestseller had it a few years ago, you can have your best life now if you just follow the steps and the procedures 
that he outlines. Never has law been done so slyly and so cleverly without the gospel with such a great grin in many, many decades. How do we square all of this with Jesus' statement that those who are well do not need a physician, but those who are sick? I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Paul also gives a recurring emphasis to weakness. On my own behalf, he says, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Spend a whole uh, hour uh, unpacking that wonderful statement, that amazing and paradoxical statement. But the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. The point of the gospel is not that there's power versus weakness, but that there's a different kind of power inserted into the matrix of the world's violent powers. That is cruciform. That actually changes, throws a wrench in the whole system of evil powers. Not because it is antithetical to power, but because it is a different kind of power. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. It's what the Reformers called a theology of the cross instead of a theology of glory. Friedrich Nietzsche is the poster child for theology of glory. You want to see a theology of glory in all of its glory? There it is. Dionysus versus the crucified. In his Varieties of Religious Experience, he wrote in 1902, Harvard philosopher William James distinguished between two types of religion, healthy-minded and morbid-minded. It was the only homegrown American philosophy probably appropriately named pragmatism. And it's characteristic that a a very distinctly uh, Walden Pond, uh, Thoreau kind of transcendentalist American would come up with this contrast between the healthy-minded, which he favored, and the morbid-minded, which he did not. In fact, he called the morbid-minded the religion of the sick soul. Those who belong to the sick soul camp, he said, see themselves as sinful, dispossessed, and disinherited, while the healthy-minded exude optimism. They're looking for religions and spiritualities that cater to that. And of course, America has attracted the disinherited from all over the earth, but with a philosophy that may well be appropriate in in one sphere, but certainly not in, in, in our relation to God. Namely, that here are the opportunities. Now make the most of yourself. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You can start in the mailroom and end up in the boardroom. If you work hard, now there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. As I was talking about yesterday, absolutely nothing wrong with how God set up the world. 
But there's this thing called the fall. And in relation to God, we certainly can't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. But because of this ideology that we're so committed to, hey, look, I'm, I'm halfway up the ladder. Do not hold me back now. Because we're so committed to that ladder, don't want to fall off, we will not abide those who tell us any bad news. Gary Wills, in his intriguing and controversial bestseller, Reagan's America, applied James's categories to the contemporary landscape. He says, The religion of the sick soul speaks of man's fall, of the need for repentance, of humility, the theme of this conference. Wills makes this observation. In its Calvinistic form, this classical religion was important in the early history of America, but America has increasingly preferred the religion James called healthy-mindedness, which replaces sin with sadness as the real enemy of human nature. The modern evangelicals beaming and healthy successes in the communications industry are exemplars of that religion. Feeling good has emerged as not only a national priority, but a religious obsession for Christians and those who do not profess faith alike. That's part of our culture, and we have to realize that it is part of our spiritual DNA as children of Adam. The religion of the healthy-minded is persuasive in our time, and I think that's why Paul said that the preaching of the cross is foolishness to the Greeks. It's a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Greeks. The irony is that the religion of Nietzsche's Superman, which the 16th century Reformation dubbed a theology of glory in its medieval version, is its own kind of slave morality. It keeps people enslaved. That was Nietzsche's critique, that Christianity is a kind of herd mentality or a slave mentality that that keeps people uh, drugged, as Marx would say, the opiate of the masses. And there certainly was a lot of that type of religion in Nietzsche's day, often called pietism. That's not, that's, that, that's, not, that's not the kind of Christianity that I'm talking about here when I talk about a theology of the cross. This isn't to advocate pessimism. The sick soul is not, is not something we celebrate. We don't, we don't dance around. I, one of my professors used to say that uh, uh, we reformed, and he could, could have included the Lutherans, but he said, we reformed uh, folk are the only people who can be proud of the fact that we know we're totally depraved. Uh, it, it's not because we take joy, some perverse joy, in being sinful. Um, and because of God's common grace, things aren't as bad as they could possibly be. But it is to accept the fact that there is no place in us where we can mount a campaign against that alliance that we have made with death. There is no place in us where we could lodge any confidence or any hope. A religion of healthy-mindedness, which ignores the reality of the fall in all of its aspects, renders itself nothing more than a form of therapy during times of plenty and irrelevant in times of tragedy. 
What we need is not therapy, but news, good news, the kind of news that lifts up the downcast, binds up the broken, saves the lost, and brings hope to those who are at the end of their rope. It doesn't cover with fig leaves, but covers them with the righteousness of the Lamb of God. Bottom line is that the gospel is good news for losers, and all of you are losers. So am I. If we measure ourselves by God's interpretation, and this doesn't mean that we're losers necessarily in things below, but that's where we get things all messed up. We begin to think that God thinks of us the way we have projected our profile to our neighbors. And it's just not true. God really knows who we are. Now, our neighbors also know who we are in terms of our accomplishments, our attainments, and so forth. But none of that means to God what it means to us and to each other. We become prisoners of our own felt needs. And when crisis hits, the soul is too effete to respond appropriately. There's nothing to steal it. We become prisoners of our own felt needs and... These needs themselves were inculcated by the market that promised a fix. So the marketplace tells us what we need and provides the remedy for it. It therefore has a great interest in cultivating and inculcating needs that we don't really have. Distracting us from the great need that we too easily overlook. As C.S. Lewis pointed out, it's not that our desires are too strong. That's not the great fear Christians have, that our desires are too strong, but that they're too weak. Because we're like children making mud pies in the slums when we could have a holiday at the sea. Just because we can't even conceive of what it would be like to have a holiday at the sea, we've never had one. It's not pessimism, but sanity that recognizes the truth in God's appraisal. Listen to this, Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8. A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? See, there's like a blues song here. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Again, it's not resignation to a mediocre life, but the realization that it's a life pursuing immediate gratification that's actually mediocre. It's, it's, it's believing what is manifestly, empirically false that we can have our best life now, that things are getting better when our bodies know better, that things are going swimmingly with us. This theology of glory is not a recipe for fulfillment or power. Rather, it spins weakness as strength, feebleness as power, and pride as humility. What the 
Reformers declared, in contrast to theologies of glory, was the theology of the cross. Here, precisely where the world seems most powerful, apart from the resolution that we find in the story itself, God is triumphing in the cross. Right exactly where the world seems to have made God powerless. God is engaged in the most powerful, miraculous, wonderful, tide-turning event that he's ever brought about since the creation itself. Even greater than the creation itself. Since creation out of nothing is one thing, creation out of sin and death is another. Nietzsche may have been describing the feeble pietism around him, the saccharine portraits of Jesus from childhood, but he couldn't have been more incorrect in his analysis that as a religion of the sick soul, the preaching of Christ was simply a message of hope. It was not a message of resignation to the powers. It was the very opposite of that. Jesus said, make no mistake about it, religious leaders, you're going to kill me, but only because I let you. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down that I might take it up again. That's 180 degrees different from the passion of the Christ. A film that, that you know, the, the goal is to make you've you got to feel sorry for Jesus. No wonder Nietzsche was kind of imagining that that's what we were talking about. That's not what we're talking about at all. Feel sorry for Jesus, get mad at the Jews. No, that's not what it's about at all. This is about a drama between God and humanity with Christ as a mediator. And from all eternity he was crucified. He became flesh knowing that his destiny was to be crucified. I came down from heaven not to do my will but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that of all he's given me I will not lose one of them, but raise them up at the last day. This is not the voice of resignation. This is not the voice of passivity. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That's not the voice of acceptance of one's fate. No, Jesus is saying, I have come to do what those who think they're powerful cannot do because actually they're weak. I'm coming at the right time, and what's the right time? While you're enemies, while you're helpless. We're the helpless ones. Jesus wasn't helpless when he was hanging on the cross. No one takes my life from me. I can lay it down, I can take it up, and I'm going to lay it down. Set of a rags to riches story, which are great, again, to hear in terms of things below. Here you have a riches to rags story, a love story. He who was rich for our sakes became poor so that in him we might become rich. Imagine one of these psalms being sung next Sunday. I imagine it would be sung here. Uh, there are some churches that still sing the psalms, and that's great. I mean, not ditties from the psalms, but whole psalms. And not just the part that says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I just, I feel, I do. Uh, but 
you know, the part that actually, the larger part that actually tells the story about what God has done. Just imagine one of these psalms sung in church next to And it's hard to syncopate this. It's, it's hard to get, you know, the upbeat. Uh, I, I won't try out some tunes. But imagine singing this to a happy, kind of cheerful tune. My soul refuses to be comforted. Great start. <laughs> when I remember God, I moan. Wow. Yeah, now you're looking at the kids. When I meditate, my spirit faints. This is really great for quiet times. You hold my eyelids open. Oh, oh, but at least he holds their eyelids open. Yeah, this is not a good eyelid holding open thing. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. He wants to just take a nap and God won't let him. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his covenant love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end? For all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? And that's just Psalm 77. Or how about Psalm 88? For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to hell. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness to me. Kind of hard to sing to shine Jesus shine. <laughs> Go on and on. Psalm 89. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, by which by your faithfulness you swore to David? See, history. This is, this is a trial. Not only is Israel on trial, but God is on trial. They're both on trial in this drama, this wonderful courtroom drama that is the history that the Bible's unfolding. To be sure, there are also answers to these laments. God is gracious and compassionate, faithful to his promises, but it doesn't look like it all the time. There is a real trial going on here, not only of the covenant servant, but of the covenant Lord. And that's where Jesus steps in because he is the only one in history who was the covenant Lord and the covenant servant. The one who calls in command and responds back in obedience. The one who cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But also hears, well done, my good and faithful servant. This is my beloved in whom I am well pleased.
But in contemporary piety and worship, discordant keys are not allowed, just keep it happy. Not a lot of crushed or broken notes. And this is virtually conceded by many contemporary church growth experts. One, in fact, celebrates the fact that we've had a shift from worship to celebrations. He says, the best illustration of this is that we used to have funerals. Then we went to memorial services. Now we have a celebration of the life and ministry of the departed person. What a horrible sentence. That is a shift in the whole atmosphere of what happens during that period of time. Notice all the euphemism in all of this talk. It's just amazing. Uh, celebration of the life and ministry of the departed person. A shift in the whole atmosphere of what happens during that period of time. It's gone from pain, sorrow, grief, and crying, he says, to celebration. And this is progress, he says, rather than a tragic sign that we're living in denial. You now hear that language of Mary Baker Eddy, the founder of Christian Science, all over the place in Christian circles when we hear people passed on. You hear it in church when it's announced uh, sometimes that somebody has died. Uh, one, of, one of the saints uh, has died recently. It'll, well, so-and-so has passed away or passed on or now just passed. Uh, an infelicitous way of talking about it. Uh, what do we mean by pass? Somebody passes? It's so euphemistic, it's, it's just an offense. In California, no one's allowed to die. Uh, they just put on another coat of paint. And, and we don't have... We don't, you know, Carl Barth could write and say, uh, you know, if, if life itself will not remind us of why we need the gospel, that's why we have the crosses in the churchyard. Well, who has cr crosses in churchyards these days? Our families are, are buried in, in, in cemeteries. So it's a whole industry... Because, you know, people aren't buried in churchyards anymore. No, I mean, my, my, we buried my dad in a cemetery. But my point is that we don't like death very much. We don't feel comfortable. We would feel very odd, just as we feel odd singing those psalms. We would feel very odd coming to a church where we could see tombs. That would be very discomforting, I think, for us as American Christians. Not for Christians in other places, but I think for us especially. Because we don't, we don't die, we just pass away. But that's not how Jesus looked at it when he was staring death in the face at Lazarus' tomb. The verbs there used are the same verbs for the disciples being overtaken by fear and, and, and anger and, and uh, uh, being thrown off their horse emotionally when Jesus calmed the sea. And they were disturbed. That's really what it, the, those two verbs mean, disturbed. Jesus was that at Lazarus' tomb when he knew he was about to raise Lazarus anyway. He didn't resign himself to death. He dueled with death. And it's called the last enemy. Not the portal to life. Not the stepping stone to the better place. It's called the last enemy. It is an enemy. 
but it will be destroyed. And not only we, but the whole creation will share, Paul says, in that liberation of the children of God. The Book of Common Prayer has services for the burial of the dead, not for the deceased or for the, uh, those who pass away, but for the dead. The Book of Common Prayer allows people to die, and it's a very Christian thing to allow people to die. Here is the citation from the psalmist in the service for the burial of the dead. Lord, let me know mine end and the number of my days that I may be certified how long I have to live. Behold, thou hast made my days as it were a span long, and mine age is even as nothing in respect of thee. And verily every man is altogether vanity, for man walketh in a vain shadow and disquieteth himself in vain. He heapeth up riches and cannot tell who shall gather them. And now, Lord, what is my hope? Truly my hope is even in thee. When thou with rebukes dost chasten men for sin, thou makest his beauty to waste away, like as it were a moth fretting a garment. Every man, therefore, is but vanity. Is this like celebration of somebody's life and ministry? No, we're vanity. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and with thine ear consider my cry. Hold not thy peace at my tears, for I am a stranger to you a sojourner with you, as all my fathers were. Oh, spare me a little, that I may recover my strength before I go hence and be no more seen. That was, that, that, that still is happily quoted in services that use the prayer book. But could you imagine burying, burying somebody who's very prominent in the community and quoting that? And then there's this prayer. O God, whose days are without end and whose mercies cannot be numbered, make us, we beseech thee, deeply sensible of the shortness and uncertainty of human life. Wow! Does that hit us between the eyes. And let thy Holy Spirit lead us through this this veil of misery. Dude, seriously, here, eat a, sni- eat a Snickers. In holiness and righteousness all the days of our lives, that when we shall have served thee in our generation, we may be gathered unto our fathers, having the testimony of a good conscience, in the communion of thy church, in the confidence of a certain faith, in the comfort of a reasonable religious and holy hope in favor with thee, our God, and in perfect charity with the world, all which we ask only through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's a different orientation. You see, in that prayer, God is not a supporting actor in your life movie. In that prayer, you get to tag along and be a character in The show about Jesus. He's the central character of this. Being a star in your own life movie is not even close to the dignity, the wonder, the freedom 
the power, the real power that comes from being raised with Christ and seated with him in heavenly places. It's amazing how again and again, especially in Mark's gospel, that note of the theology of the cross meets with the rebuke of the disciples who have a very different intention when they get to Jerusalem. I'm going to close with this point, and I'll make it very brief. But it starts with the temptation of Jesus when Satan offers him the kingdoms of the world, earthly power, temporal prestige and riches and honor, and you know, the whole shtick. And Jesus refuses it, answering every one of Satan's rebukes with a passage from Scripture. But as Jesus went along that road toward Jerusalem, more signs accompanied increasingly clear announcements about his person and work. Crowds began pressing in on him, even for Jesus' own brothers who didn't believe in him yet. He was a cash cow. Let's, uh, let's go over here where we can really get up a crowd. It was the theology of glory, the religion of the healthy-minded, very optimistic, very revolutionary, very victorious. The closer they get to Jerusalem, the disciples were thinking, if we can make it there, we can make it anywhere. <laughs> Jerusalem, Jerusalem. This, this is the place. This is the place. They, honestly, they were thinking, the Messiah comes. Isn't that what it says? He enters into Jerusalem. That's what all the prophets said. And that is where he's enthroned as Messiah forever, and he never dies. That's what they were thinking. No wonder it was jarring when Jesus said, oh, by the way, I don't want you guys to be surprised, but I'm going to be crucified there. <laughs> and I'll be, I'll be raised on the third day. No, <laughs> that's not how it goes. That's not how it goes. No. You, there's an X. Now, this is, this is bigger than all of us. And we all have our specialties, Jesus. You're great with the talking and you're great with the miracles and everything. We'll put an X here and you just stand there and you do your thing. But we've got a plan. And when we get to Jerusalem, we're going to unfurl that plan. It's going to be a big deal. It's, you're, you'll, you'll love it. You, you'll love it. Mark's gospel especially underscores the repeated times that Jesus tried to explain his death and resurrection. Finally, Peter, weary of all this talk about the theology of the cross, rebukes Jesus. That's what it says. He turned and rebuked him. Then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed and after three days rise again. He said all of this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Divine things here corresponds to the theology of the cross. And human things, the way we would like things to go in the theology of glory. He calls to the crowd, and said to them, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. 
and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of my gospel will find it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? On an earlier occasion, James and John had gone with Jesus to a certain Samaritan village that was not very welcoming. They preached the gospel there and James and John now filled with sense of boldness, the sons of thunder, aptly nicknamed, said to Jesus, do you want us to call fire down on them? And all we read is Jesus rebuked them sternly and they went to another village. (laughs) Don't you want the, oh, of all the things to leave out. In Mark 10, Jesus explains his impending death and James and John say, no, 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 no. Here's the deal. When we get, when we go to Jerusalem, here's the real issue. Forget, I don't know why said the cross thing. Never mind. Uh, when we get there, can we be one on your left and one on your right? And in Luke's gospel, actually, it says it has James, uh, uh, it has the mothers of James, mother of James and John introducing the idea. Uh, can one of my sons sit on your right? Can one sit on your, uh, on your left? And Jesus said, wow, that's a different picture, I think, than I have in mind. Uh, and, and he says to James and John, you, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? I love it. They replied, we are able. <laughs> oh, turn your scars into stars and your crosses into stepping stones. We are able. There it is. That is the theology of glory. We are able. Of course we are able. Jesus, don't you know us by now? We are competent. Yeah, we've grown a lot in the last couple of years. This is, this is a big deal for us. And when we get to Jerusalem, we'll be able to handle it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of work. I know. It'll be big building the kingdom. That's going to take a lot of work. But I, I think we're up to it. And Jesus says, you do not know what you're asking. Mercifully, he said he would not honor their request. And then he turned to the disciples and said, you know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lorded over them? And their great ones are tyrants. But it's not so among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be the first among you must be the slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Sometimes kings find, rulers find, that they have to send men and women, sons and daughters, into harm's way for the good of their kingdom. But this is the only, this is the only king who sheds his own blood for his kingdom while the heirs of that kingdom yell, crucify him. And now for the fourth time, Jesus speaks at length concerning his death. And again, the Father and the Holy Spirit testify to the Son's ministry. The disciples may not get it, but the Father and the Holy Spirit comfort him. 
Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it's for this hour that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard, and as they heard it, they said it was like thunder. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Now is the judgment of the world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate the kind of death he was to die. As Calvin said, never was such a splendid throne erected in the middle of the world than the Roman gibbet on which Christ hung. The gospel is better than chicken soup for the soul. The good news announced so long ago, sealed by the suffering servant and his victory over sin and death, is held out to all who are weary of trying to play out this theology of glory, who are tired of trying to be supermen, who are try, tired of, of being cynical, because that's where the unrealistic optimism leads, finally, to despair and cynicism, who are, t who are, who are ready to exchange their dead-end character in the show about nothing for that everlasting role in the communion of saints purchased for God out of every tribe, kindred, tongue, people, and nation as a kingdom of priests to our God. For everyone who is weary of a theology of glory in all of its forms, Jesus has secured a theology of the cross. And not only of the cross, but of the resurrection. Not only did he die, but he was raised. Not only was he raised as an exclamation point for his crucifixion, he was raised into the new creation as the pioneer, as the bringer, as the forerunner of what we will all be, because as the king goes, so goes the kingdom. And he still calls out to us today, All you who are in the rat race, religious, economic, whatever it is, all you who are tired and burdened down, come to me and I will give you rest. Amen. We have time for a, a few questions now before we take a break. Does anyone have something they would like to mention to Dr. Horton? Dr. Horton, hi. Thank you for your talk. I just had a question, um, and I hope it relates to what you said today, too. But um, Jake mentioned the first night that this news can be very disturbing, maybe, and if you have a nervous breakdown, you know, in, over this weekend, like <laughs> people will be here to talk to you. So I'm, I'm curious myself if, if I have family members or friends and, you know, I, I, I've heard this message and I know they too need to hear it. 
what, what is my role in being with them in that process of breaking down and surrender? Okay, I'm sorry. My hearing is, is bad with the echo. Could you maybe... Sure, I, I guess to summarize, I'm just curious what, what my role is in the lives of my friends or family members who, who have not yet heard this message of the gospel and of surrender in the process of them experiencing like a nervous breakdown, basically, which might lead them to the point of surrender. Uh, well, I think that we have to realize that we can't, we can't get them there and they can't surrender. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it, it is something that happens uh, when and where God wills through his word. And so he, uh, we, we, we proclaim this message and we, we comfort people with the gospel. Uh, we challenge people to look at the predicament of their, uh, the seriousness of their situation before God. We do all of that, but at the end of the day, we can't change them and they can't change themselves. It has to come by the Spirit through the Word. And that frees us up. It, it liberates us to not uh, sort of take over God's role and try to drill it into people because they need this so badly. We know they need it and they don't know it. Well, it, it's going to take a miracle. And uh, especially when people are going through it, when people are in the midst of it. And this is why, and this is not meant at all to say that you know, God can do anything at any time. But it is harder from a human perspective. It is harder for us to get sound theology when we're in the middle of the trial itself. Just as it's, it's you know, hard to uh, practice law while you're taking the LSAT. You have, to, you have to prepare for it beforehand. And we're never prepared when we go into suffering. We say, wow, I thought that I had good theology. <laughs> no, it's not how much of a handle we have on God, but how much of a handle he has on us. And that's the message that we have to keep getting, getting, just pouring over people's heads when they're going through those trials. My grace is sufficient for you. It's enough. Well, yeah, but you don't know. I did. No, it's enough. My grace is sufficient. Just keep pouring it on. I know you talked about some of this in uh, the White Horse Inn, but can you talk about the difference between the gospel proclaimed and then the gospel lived. I know that you went into that in a couple of series, but just talk about the difference, the distinction between those two. Okay. This is, we got, the gospel proclaimed is right and the gospel lived is wrong. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's a category mistake. It's, this is not about whether we, whether we live the Christian life. Of course we live the Christian life. Just It's wrong to call that living the gospel. The gospel is good news, and I, by definition, am not that. And so I cannot be, nor can my works be, the good news. You have absolutely no hope if that's the case. And if you have any questions, just ask my wife, and she'll confirm that. Uh, I'm, I, I'm one of the reasons, like you're one of the reasons, that we need the gospel. Um, we're, we're those sick people for whom he came. And... So the, the whole notion of living the gospel really means doing good works 
and that is a confusion of law with gospel, we can say we do good works in the light of the gospel because of the gospel. In view of God's mercies, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Sweet-smelling sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise. Uh, Living in the world is an aroma of life to those who receive it, an aroma of death to those who reject it. We can say all of that, but that's not living the gospel. It's because Jesus lived the law for us, bore the curses of the law for us, and rose again triumphantly on the third day, that we have a gospel that is not about us, but is for us. Uh, I really loved what you said about the you know passing on and you know versus you, you you're dead. I heard a story about a clergyman who uh, actually was being attacked basically all day long by a funeral director, and it culminated in uh, in in the committal of the body. Uh, the, the funeral director said, you have to use these rose petals. And he was like, no, I need dirt. And they were like, no, we're using rose petals. That's nicer. And I wanted to ask, you know, and it was just back and forth. Um, I wanted to ask you, why is it pastorally important for you to say, no, they've died versus they've passed on or, you know, a celebration of their life? Why is it better to say a funeral rather than a celebration of life from a pastoral perspective? Well, I'm, this is rhetorical, I'm sure. You're, uh, uh, I, I, I think, I think that uh, you, know, you look at the difference, as I'm, I'm sure you would say, Jake. You look at the difference between the way the Book of Common Prayer service, which would have been any, the, 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 uh, uh, any Reformed or Lutheran service. Just the way Christians used to think, naturally, normally. Uh, that, that sense of death being something that is horrible, but you need to get in touch with. You know, the whole idea of awake where uh, you have, you know, it, the Puritans in, in New England would have uh, the casket open and the, uh, the children for a week would uh, come by and look at grandma and, and touch grandma. And, and there it is, there's death. Lots of conversations about death and dying. Oh, we don't want to have children have to go work through that at such a young age. They didn't have a problem with that because their whole idea was that actually growing up is a good thing. Um, <laughs> and facing, you know, maturity is, uh, is, is all right. Uh, but the difference theologically is that death is our last enemy. A lot of people, I think, implicitly imagine in in our churches imagine that death is a good thing because it's the portal to life but that's plato you know plato for plato and most greeks death was salvation because death is finally being liberated from the prison house the bodily prison house of the soul i think that's also one of the reasons why the gospel is foolishness to greeks because it's a uh, basically, uh, you know, Paul in Second Corinthians says that, yes, our soul is with the Lord during the interme- intermediate state, but it, is, it feels naked. It's longing to be clothed. That's not the sort of thing that uh, Plato would have said. No, it's longing to be freed from its bodily carapace, not its longing to be clothed. 
that's why we say in the creed that we're looking for the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Not we're looking forward to going to heaven when we die. We are looking forward to going to heaven when we die. But that is not, that's, there's a reason it's called the intermediate state. It's intermediate. It isn't the final state. It isn't, our full salvation doesn't come, Paul says in Romans 8, until our bodies are raised in glory. So passing on is just, I think, a denial of, it's an implicit, not an explicit, but an implicit denial of the resurrection of the body. Uh, Dr. Horton, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I'm really interested in preaching the, the blues to losers. Uh, in other words, the theology of the cross. And I think that's a big part of what Mockingbird is trying to do, so I really appreciate what you had to say this morning. Another big part of what Mockingbird is trying to do, I think, is the means of preaching and teaching that message, which is often using uh, media and pop culture and art and whatnot to be sort of the, the back door to the human heart. And I wonder what you think about uh, what we're trying to do here uh, with the, the means of communicating that theology, of the, uh, mm. that message of the cross. Thanks, man. I, I think it's wonderful, and I think it's, uh, I, I, again, one of the great things about organizations like Mockingbird that you can do things that you can't do in church and shouldn't do in church. Uh, The church isn't commissioned or authorized to exegete culture. But Christians, in their various callings, can't. There's nothing more uh, irritating than uh, irritating to people in the congregation who know pop culture better than their pastor to hear their pastor giving interpretations, and they say, no, actually, I read three reviews on that, and da 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 Or on opera, or on whatever. Um, I think it's... It, but, here, you have such a wealth of people who can weigh in on all of those intersections without having to do it as part of the regular uh, Word and Sacrament ministry. Uh, that, that it's a real resource for a lot of us um, who uh, have no idea what we just saw uh, until somebody explains it to us. Um, I mean, it, th- I know people like that. Uh, <clears throat> so I, 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 for one, enjoy the, the uh, uh, analysis, the cultural analysis from Mockingbird. I think it's, I think it's incredibly valuable. And it's, a, it's not just a gimmick to get conversation started with folks. It's really seeing how even in, in this passing evil age, uh, God has hidden these sort of archetypal uh, parables uh, of his kingdom. Um, certainly not as clearly as revealed in his word, but that there's, there, are, there are places out there uh, other than the church where there are intersections between uh, Christ and his fallen world.